Hi, I'm Damien Mew, CEO of AI Australia New Zealand, and we are proud to bring you this Future Women production. At AIA, our purpose is to make a difference in people's lives and champion Australia to be the healthiest nation in the world. In this pursuit, we are passionate about supporting women to live healthier, longer, better lives. It's not always easy. That's why we believe in dreaming big but thinking small, as good health starts by making small, healthy changes. Visit aavitality.com.au to find out how we can support and reward you to take your first small steps to a healthier you. This podcast is brought to you by Future Women, a new home for women to come together online and in person. Become a member to gain full access to Future Women's content, events and community. Plus, our packed calendar of member-only social club events. For more details, head to futurewomen.com. You know those huge underpants that yeah. grannies wear? Yeah. That we were like, we want, we want the fabric. The Bridget really, Jones yeah, saggy. Yeah. Absolutely. We've, we found this pair of cottontails and it was this super, super fine fabric. And from there, the basic jersey was developed. Hi there, welcome to Future Women with Sylvia Jeffries, where we climb inside the brilliant minds of successful female founders and learn how they've spun their simple ideas into global game changers. So whether you're in business, own one, or dream of doing it for yourself, these conversations will guide you through the keys to development, scale and investment with a heavy hit of humour and reality on the side. This week, I'm joined by Deborah Sams, co-founder of Australian fashion label Basic. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I suppose we've never really been a trend-driven brand. Um, we never, uh, we're never really on trend. Um, our brand DNA is about creating classic wardrobe staples. Um, it's about longevity. Basic was born on Sydney's northern beaches in 2006 with a vision to create adaptable, sustainable and timeless everyday pieces. The classic basic soft fabric t-shirt has become a cult hit, not just here, but across the globe. Deborah has a wonderfully calm disposition. Everything about her makes you want to Marie Kondo your life. And it's that simple, steady approach to business that has allowed Basic to thrive in really tough retail markets. Follow what you want to do, do what you want to do, but be conscious and aware that it's going to take a long time and that you need to be in it for the long haul people become successful because they're good at it and they're doing something that they enjoy and they're, they're where they want to be. At the time of recording this interview, Deborah and I were at a Future Women event in Brisbane. To find out more about our events, head to futurewomen.com. For now, here is my chat with Deb Sams. Deborah Sams, thank you so much for joining me at Future Women today. Thank you so much for having me, Sylvia. Well, it's great to be here tonight. We're here for a Future Women event at the beautiful Carlisle Hotel in Brisbane, which is right above one of your stores. It sure is. And what a beautiful precinct it is here. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. It is. They've had such an amazing vision, um, the Maloof family. They've created such a beautiful retail and hospitality destination. Very proud to be part of it. Well, there's a lot for you to be proud of at Basic, which is um, such a, a celebrated and popular Australian brand, which you have built from the ground up since 2006. So what was the catalyst? What was the drive behind Basic back then when you started? Lou and I had both been working in the industry for about 15 years and um, it was time to do something for ourselves and we had an opportunity to create something really different at the time um, 
in fashion. It was very busy. Everything was heavily branded and logoed. And we felt there was an opportunity to create a quieter brand and something really simple and minimal. And that's where we came up with the concept. Did that feel like a risk at the time, being a quiet brand in a busy market? No, it felt more like an opportunity because it just, it, no one was really doing that in Australia. And we, we felt like, you know, we were filling a gap, I suppose. So, what did the business look like when you started? It was just you and Mary Lou? Yeah, it was the two of us. For probably the first few years, we um, employed a bookkeeper about six months into it, Jill, who still works with us. And um, yeah, we were a two-man band for a good few years, which was great um, because we are at a stage in our lives where we didn't have children. Um, I was recently married, so we could really devote ourselves and uh, put all our energy into the business. How did you set it up? What did, what did you have financially to get this off the ground and how long did it take? We had a little bit of money and um, that went really quickly. And it's sort of actually, I think within three months it was gone. <laughs> but luckily... And that was a, like a family loan? Yeah, yeah. it was. And then um, luckily we just, any money that we made, we just poured straight back into the business. So we were, we were at that time in our lives where we could live off next to nothing and not earn any money and just um, invest all the profits back into the business. So that, that was how we ran it for the first few years. And how long did it take? to get your idea and turn that into a range of t-shirts and slouch pants that were eventually for sale? We were probably working on it for about six months um, and then that was concept and then producing the product or the samples was another maybe three and then to get that into the market was another three. So probably up to 12 months before we actually delivered into the marketplace. Anyone who has worn a basic t-shirt, myself included, never goes back to anything else because it's all in that soft fabric that you've created and that's that really underpins your whole business doesn't it that fabric that you've that you've created in your own right well that absolutely i mean that took us about three or four months to really develop that fabric and um, the inspiration came from a pair of um, Bonds cottontails, you know, those huge underpants that yeah. grannies wear. Yeah. That we were like, we want, we want the fabric. The Bridget really, Jones yeah, saggy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we found this pair of cottontails and um, it was this super, super fine fabric. And um, yeah, from there, the basic jersey was developed. And then we had the chance to develop non-organic or organic cotton and we, we decided to go with organic. So that was, that was a great decision we made 13 years ago. So you were doing sustainable fashion long before sustainable fashion really became a thing, a, a sort of trend, and I put that in inverted commas. Um, why was that such an important element of your business all the way back in 2006? I think just having a choice, it was put in front of us and we thought, Absolutely. There was no question. I mean, it was more expensive to do that, but it felt right at the time. Was it, I mean, it must have been a, a risk to some degree because surely um, your costs were probably higher, I suppose, in making the products that way. It, yeah, it was, it was definitely harder to produce the organic yarn. Um, the sourcing was a lot more 
tricky and the pricing was higher. So it was a risk, but it felt we were both really confident that we would make it work. And how many stores were you selling in when you first launched? I think we probably launched in about 30 boutiques across Australia. So it was quite sizable from the first delivery. Yeah. And that was helped by the fact that you and Mary Lou both already had a lot of contacts in the industry? Yeah, that's right. Um, through the previous jobs that we had, we'd developed great um, great relationships with different boutiques and different store owners and they were really, really supportive of us when we started. Um, when did you decide to start building your bricks and mortar stores? Because a lot of people are pulling out of bricks and mortar retail these days. It was pretty early. I think we were about three years in and the first store we opened was in Avalon, my hometown where I grew up. And um, there was a great location that had been empty for a few months. And we decided to do a pop-up, which was really successful. And we got a lot of advice and everyone we spoke to was, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it. And we were paying way too much rent. But at the time we felt like that was our vision and we needed to, you know, we needed to try it. And we would, we sort of, we always had this, um, this idea that we'd just make things work, no matter how much of a risk they were, we would make them work. And so we have. (laughs) Um, What was your vision for basic back then? Did you see yourself being in a certain number of stores or being in a certain number, number of locations or breaking a certain international market? Yeah, we had, we had big aspirations from the start. Um, we both wanted to be, to be seen and known as an iconic Australian brand. And I think in that being Australian made as well and the purity around being an Australian made brand was really important to us because at that point in fashion, everyone was, you know, producing offshore a lot of the um, local industry, local producers were closing down. So that was really important for us to have that backstory behind the product that we were made in Australia. Was it scary leaping into your own business and taking on all of that risk and responsibility? Yes and no. I think we're both very positive people and we had the stars in our eyes and I think the initial reaction to the brand was so positive that we felt like we were onto something. But there were times that were scary and there were times that were challenging in the beginning because you don't foresee what's ahead when you're starting out and you don't know Mm. what's ahead. So, yeah, there were definitely times in the early days and still now where things get scary but... You just have to keep going. (laughs) Well, you've weathered a number of storms along the way, which some retailers these days, some fashion businesses these days probably wouldn't quite understand um, the enormity of with respect to the global financial crisis for a start. That hit not too long after you first launched and um, the Australian dollar reaching parity with the American dollar, all those sorts of storms that you've had to get around. How have they knocked you back or knocked you sideways along the way? How significantly did you feel those hits? Fairly significantly. We, um, that's all we knew though. We were only a year in business when the GFC hit and um, I think it, it made you a lot more 
focused, a lot more measured with your decisions. Um, we were exporting to Europe and to the US at the time when the dollar went parity. That really made us think about, well, is this the right time to be building an international business? And it wasn't. So we changed course and moved back to Australia and then focused really on building a retail platform and really solidifying our brand in Australia before we took on the US and the European market. And was that the right decision? Absolutely, it was. I mean, we've, we've been able to build a successful um, retail business here and also build an infrastructure in Australia that's able to support an international business. And it's so much more complicated than you think that international business. You don't you think you're going to make the money that you do here. You don't, you don't actually do that for a very long time. So you need to have very deep pockets to build a brand internationally. And, you know, in the early years, it, it was too early for us to do that. So I'm really, you know, we're really glad that we made that decision. And all those things that really happened along the way helped really pave the way for the way we grew our business. What was the biggest bump along the way? Well, there's been a few. Um, obviously, you know, different financial things that have happened. I mean, now, you know, currently sentiment out there is is very, you know, people aren't spending money the way they used to. And and it's, you know, it's challenging. The retail environment is, in, is challenging, but it's also how you navigate that. And, you know, making sure that within your business, you are able to to take those bumps along the way. And that's something I think as a brand we've been really good at doing. Um, it's been difficult and we've had really tough times, but it just makes you better at what you do. And about nine years ago, um, Billy Voss came across to the business. He wasn't CEO right away though. He was general he manager. He started as general manager. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And what has he brought to the business? Oh wow, he's bought <laughs> he's he's um he's bought so much to the business. I mean, it's such an interesting dynamic between say the four of us including our financial controller. Um, you know, I have the stars in my eyes and I want to do this that and the creative and Lou's similar to me and we have the emotional attachment as well and Billy has the commercial, he has the you know, the reality side. He he can build that structure for us and show us what it what it could look like, what it what it may look like. Um, he's bought a skill, lots of skills to the business that both Lou and I didn't have. He's also bought the male energy, which has been fantastic. Um, he's also bought, um, you know, he, culturally, he's he's such a wonderful person. I mean, he's he's helped us build a really healthy culture within our business that is respectful, um, that's, you know, performance-driven, that we're, we all love being on the winning team. It's not – there's no politics in our business. I mean, Billy's really helped us create that um, healthy environment in our, in our office and in our stores. So we've been really fortunate to have him with us for that many years. And so this is the part where we get to hiring for your weaknesses. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, everyone who has, I think, succeeded in their business has been able to identify where, where you know, the gaps are and 
you know, how, how to hire to fill that gap in, how to strengthen the business as a result. Um, is that something that you were able to do from the get-go, something that you were, you know, you were happy to identify and, and work around? We always made a conscious decision to invest in our people um, from the very early days and it, that sort of cost us. You know, we, you know, we had a CFO on board four years into our business and that was a big investment but it, you know, it's helped us build a really strong financial pr- platform where we've been able to create a business that we are fully funded by ourselves, by Lou and myself, we don't have any financial backers. Um, we've been able to build the business through profits. Has it been tempting at times to look for backers or to seek backers? No. Why not? not? Just having the freedom, you know, having the freedom to not be answering to people. Who aren't as invested in the business as you are. Yeah, or, or maybe different, wanting different outcomes. Um, I think you know, having the independence was really important to Lou and I. It has been hard at times, but it's also um, helped us make really measured decisions um, because we haven't had money that we can just, okay, let's open a store here, let's do this. Everything has been very calculated and very measured. And I think that's really part of why we are successful. Some investors may have warned you against opening more and more retail stores, more bricks and mortar stores in this current retail environment. Why have you gone ahead and and continued to invest in your stores? Why is that important to your brand? I think the um, bricks and mortar element for us is is so important because it's what we know. And, you know, we have a successful retail business. We're good at opening stores. We're good at delivering a great environment for our customers. Um, our customers want that personal contact. We, we have a great online business, but our customers love coming to the store. They love being served. They love that direct contact with the product and, and the styling from our sales associates. I think it's it's that holistic approach um, that they're looking for. And I think, you know, for us, having investors, they may, may you know, it may be just looking at the bottom line. And for us, there's obviously it takes time to build a store. Your first 18 months, you know, you, you don't get a return on your investment, but or you'll get a small return on your investment. And then it's it's the last, you know, say for Avalon, we've, that store has been going for 10 years. It's a really profitable, it's a great store for us. So it's, it's part of a longer term strategy. Um, I think, as I said, being measured in where you open your stores and being smart about who you partner with. Um, Emporium is our first shopping centre that we've been in, mm-hmm. um, that we've opened in, and that was um, six months ago that we opened that store. So we've really stayed out of major shopping centres and we've focused on strip shopping areas. And that's been a win for us because the rents are a lot more sustainable. And are you still turning over a lot in the stores compared to, say, your online sales? Yeah, I mean, the stores are successful, absolutely. I mean, you have peaks and troughs, but the online store is absolutely our biggest store in terms of turnover. But um, our other stores are really successful stores. And if they're not, we, we focus and we get the right teams and make sure the product's right and we we work on them and we make them successful and it takes time and it's 
it's a moving target. You know, you'll have one store that's doing really well and then another store that's, you know, the manager's left and you've got to fill that position. And, and it's peaks and troughs, but it's something that we're really committed to as a brand. When you first started, what was in the range? The T-shirts, obviously. Yeah, it was a jersey collection. So we had two weights of jersey, a 90 gram and a 120 gram. So a super fine and a single. And with those two fabrications, we made anything from dresses to pants to T-shirts. And we were quite creative with the jersey back then. And um, some of those pieces are actually still in the collection today. And still some of them are your best sellers. They are. They are. Which must be somewhat vindicating, I imagine, to know that you were bang on from the very beginning of the business. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I suppose we've never really been a trend-driven brand. Um, we never, uh, we're never really on trend. Um, our brand DNA is about creating classic wardrobe staples. Um, it's about longevity, and that's part of the sustainability piece to our brand. We we make sure that we're creating clothing that you know isn't throwaway, that's not disposable, that that people invest in and they're having their wardrobes for a long time and they're still relevant. They haven't gone out of, you know, the shapes haven't dated. Um, the fabrics still look good. Yeah, so. Is that part of your future proofing as well, in a sense, not to be beholden to a trend? I think so. I mean, I think that separates us as well from other brands the fact that we do have our own brand identity and we're not chasing trends. We're actually, we're doing our thing and we do it in a very basic way. Um, in saying that, I, I think our product is still very identifiable. Um, you know, the chain stitch back necks, even the jersey, um, little details and things we do. And just our, gen our styling is, is very much a basic look. Um, and I think that, that's really separates us from, you know, the trend-driven, constantly reinventing, re-evolving doorway of fashion. We should set the record straight, as we did in the first take of this, which wasn't recorded, um, <laughs> just for fun. Um, the pronunciation, how do you say basic? Exactly like that. That's it? Yeah. So it's not a sort of hyacinth bouquet kind of <laughs> flowery a, scenario. A yeah. You, do you do you hear all sorts of variations? I do, and I love it. It's it's quite it's funny, and I don't. I mean, however you say it is fine, but to set the record straight, it is basic. It's a play on the word B A S I C, basic. And who came up with the spelling? Lou and I did together. We played around with it for hours and hours and then we had to do all the trademarking, the international trademarking. So that sort of dictates also spelling to make sure that there's not another brand that's trademarked with that spelling. So it, it, it's quite a process actually. When you uh, first started, how much were you selling the T-shirts for, the jersey T-shirts? $80. And was that considered quite high at that time or where did that sort of sit in the market? I think in the market that we were playing in it was it was quite good um, because we were sitting in that sort of more luxury high-end boutique so you'd buy a $450 pant and you'd buy an $80 t-shirt to go back so we've never played in that volume sort of 
that lower end of the market, that price point, we've always sat sort of slightly above it. And I think that our customer expects that from us um, and they can also see the quality and you know people have our t-shirts for 10 years they they wear them till they've got a million holes in them and they love them and um, people can sort of justify the, the price point I think because they're easy to maintain as well in terms of cleaning and the rest of it as well which was a part of your plan as well right Absolutely. I mean, when Lou and I started Basic, we were buying, you know, $350, dare I say, T-shirts mm-hmm. overseas that were the beautiful fine jersey, but you you could only dry clean them. So our plan was to develop a super fine jersey in Australia that was already machine washed and tumble dried. So the shrinkage was already taken out of them so that when the customer took it home it would and washed it, it would remain the same size. Mm. Which is crucial. I mean, why should that be so hard? I know, but I mean, if you, there's not many t-shirts out there that actually you can do that. Yeah. And so they were $80 back then. How much would the same t-shirt sell for now? Probably about 90. Which is not a huge jump. No, we probably should look at that. You might have to. (laughs) Sorry to anyone who's listening who loves the t-shirts as I do. Um, How have you been able to maintain that price point over the years? Good question. Um, look, I think the margins are probably not as good as they used to be. Um, it, the cost of doing business has gone up. Um, the cost of producing a T-shirt has gone up. The yarn has gone up. But I suppose for us, um, you know, there is a point where we feel that, you know, buying the T-shirt has value at a certain price and for us, you know, there's a sweet spot there and there's a sweet spot with pricing that we feel that we really consider that quite as much as you wouldn't think so. We really look at the pricing every season and make sure that it's the right price for the customer. Mm. And at the same time, your range has diversified a lot more as well in terms of trenches and jackets and dresses and things that you weren't necessarily doing at the start, has that been a, a, an easy does it kind of approach in terms of growing the range? Yeah, that's happened fairly naturally as we've had little opportunities along the way and been introduced to different um, partners, i.e. Um, our Japanese denim makers. Um, we work with a beautiful bespoke denim factory in Kojima and um, there's 14 machinists. It's a very small family-owned factory. They're sustainable. They, they work back with a wash house um, that's very close to the factory that the, the fathers were friends growing up, and it's all very, very close. And, and it's this, not this mass-produced garment. There's a lot of thought and care that goes into producing that denim. So we've sort of added that denim category onto the brand probably about three years in. And then we were introduced to a fabulous um, fabric producer in Italy through a good friend. And we've been able to develop and produce that mainline side of our business, which is all the dresses and the jackets and beautiful, beautiful fabrics. So little opportunities come you come across along the way. And we've never had these grand plans to oh we're going to do this now we're going to do that now I think it's really just evolved and we've tried things um, and if they've worked we've sort of continued on and and further built them 
Um, the accessories is a new area for us and we're now developing um, footwear out of Italy as well. So I go to Italy every year and develop, you know, beautiful shoes in Tuscany and it's a nice excuse to go to Tuscany. It is. It is. <laughs> Driving through the Chianti region, oh. going to all these little factories and then having a, having a little lunch on the side. No, it's, it's – everything we do feels good and there's a, there's a story behind it and an authenticity and we work with small f- factories and small makers and, and I don't know, it, there's just something very special about our products and um, how we develop and produce them. Sustainability has always been front of mind for you and Mary Lou, but it's certainly a lot more popular now in 2019. Do you think it is just a trend or is this a permanent shift in the fashion world? Look, I think um, businesses, it's going to be mandatory for businesses to have a social conscience and um, it is a shift and it's, it's going to become more so that society will demand for business to to be sustainable and um, it, it is definitely a trend and I think you know if you scratch the surface or if you if you delve a bit deeper it'd be interesting to, to look into those to sustainability and 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 really what does that mean um, for us it's really about building a sustainable business from a holistic point of view um, your practices your people um, your manufacturing um, it's it's a bigger picture than just producing an organic cotton T-shirt. That's mm. part of the puzzle, but there's a whole lot more to it. So how many stores do you have today? We have 10 in Australia and one in Venice, California. Great. And with plans to expand more overseas? At the moment, probably not retail stores, but we're looking at building a US business with our wholesale. We've got some great partners that we're working with out of New York and um, we've had you know, we've had a few seasons with them and it's it's going really well. So that's that will be our focus. And is the long-term goal to continue to grow this on your own or is there a plan to sell at some stage if the opportunity arises? Look, I, never say never. I mean... We're, we're certainly not at a, at a point where we're ready to sell. Um, we feel like there's so much more we can do with our brand and, and really build value into the brand. And, you know, there's markets that we haven't even touched um, and categories we haven't touched. And there's so, so much more we can do. Um, but who knows in 10 years' time. Yeah. <laughs> Basic is 13 years old now, so it's a teenager. Is, is there anything else you – would want to be doing with your life? <laughs> Funny you ask. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, the old cliche of moving to Byron and yeah. having a veggie patch, that's one of them. Um, Just getting around barefoot and carefree. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, becoming a Pomeranian breeder. Why the Pomeranian? I have a Pomeranian. Oh, okay. But you could have some more. <laughs> I'd love a farm, actually. Of wow. No, that's a bit of a joke. Um yeah, I mean, look, of course, I'd love to be doing something not related to business. I, I'm so interested in the world and that we live in and travel and history. And I mean, I feel like I've got so much to learn and also just to focus on outside of business itself. And you can get very caught up in 
business and making money and surviving and but there's just so much else to spend your time doing and I'm looking forward to that opportunity yeah. one day. I hear a lot of people in fashion talk about surviving and I think probably on the outside a lot of people see it as very glamorous and high-end and and things that it possibly is not. Is that a myth that it is all, you know, fancy lunches and events and high heels and the rest of it? Look, I think it can be if you choose that path. I mean, it's not something I've ever done. Um, Certainly not that interested in fancy lunches and going out to dinners and being at events, um, which is probably why Lou and I are fairly still unknown as people behind a brand. But that was always a conscious decision for us. Um, The the fashion industry is a really hard industry and I often wonder why I got into it. But at the same time, I think it's in your blood. It's either, and if it's in your blood and it's something that you love doing, I think it's a fantastic industry to be in and there's so many amazing things that it offers. We've got great lives. We get to travel a lot. Um, we meet interesting people. We get to be creative and, you know, have our own vision and have control over that. You know, there's definitely a glamorous side to it, but that's sort of a conscious choice of how you want your brand to be and how you want to be. Um, Lou and I are fa- fairly private people. Um, we live fairly quietly and we never really want to be the face of our brand. Uh, the product is the face of our brand and it's always been about the product speaking for itself. So yeah. that works for you. Yeah. Um, only 34% of entrepreneurs are female. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on perhaps what is holding women back from taking that leap that you had no fear of taking. Look, I think, you know, for women, there's always the challenge of motherhood and balancing motherhood with career. And, um, you know, if you want to be a mother and, and have a family, you need to step in and out of your career. And sometimes that can hold you back from from getting to where you want to be and also the commitment with your time and and what it takes to have a career and how much time it takes and you have one son I have a seven-year-old yeah 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 and did you have to take a little bit of a step back when Um, he came along a little bit I had six months off but was still designing and and being involved with the business but it was at that early stage where it, it was doable and I've also got a really supportive husband that is really present and we share the parenting and I think that that really allows women to have careers and have families and I think that's really changing now that women are becoming a lot more supported at home and it is a partnership rather than this is what you do, this is what I do and co-parenting, you know, Mums and dads both work and they both parent and it just seems to, that's the way it is now. I mean, not many people can afford not to work, can they? Mm, Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So what would be your advice to women who are thinking of starting their own business, but they don't have the guts to maybe take that risk and leap into the unknown? I would say follow what you want to do, do what you want to do, but be conscious and aware that it's going to take a long time and that you need to be in it for the long haul. Um, And maybe before you start, before you try, maybe go and work for somebody else and just make sure that 
you know, that's really what you want to be doing and that you have the knowledge and a bit of experience before you start on some fantastic idea. Um, having that experience and knowledge behind you is so much more helpful than starting from learning everything from, you know, scratch. Is there a piece of advice that you've been given along the way that you tend to live by? Success is about doing what you love and because usually from that people become successful because they're good at it and they're doing something that they enjoy and they're they're where they want to be. Well, thank you for sharing that all with us and we'll see you soon. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you. Special thanks to Deb for allowing me to interview her not once but twice after I failed to hit record on the first chat. Whoops. I'm Sylvia Jeffries. Don't forget to hit subscribe on whatever podcast app you're using. Give us a rating if you're on iTunes. And if you really enjoyed this chat, then please go ahead and leave us a review while you're there. This podcast was brought to you by AIA, supporting Australians to live healthier, longer, better lives. AIA Insurance for life, health and well-being. This production was produced by Dan McHugh. Thanks for listening. 